0: Welcome to today's edition of the Ambition podcast. I'm David Woods-Hale, Director of Marketing and Communications at Amber and BGA, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Amber Cabral, author of Allies and Advocates, Creating an Inclusive and Equitable Culture. Today we're going to have a chat about some of the key points from the book, as well as talking about inclusive leadership and organizational culture a little bit more generally. Well, Amber, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today um, about your new book, Allies and Advocates. And we'll come to that in a second. But just before we start, I thought it might be quite useful if you could perhaps share a little bit about yourself and your career to date.
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, As you said, my name is Amber Cabrong. I am an inclusion strategist. What that essentially means is that companies call me when they're trying to figure out how to develop an inclusive culture. And what my company does, my company's name is Cabralco. Um, We're a boutique-sized inclusion and diversity consulting firm. And what we essentially do is kind of come in and help um, build strategies, do training, um, provide some supporting resources for mostly corporations, a number of retailers, a little bit of tech, some financial services, but getting folks to the point where they are able to create work environments that people are able to bring the fullness of themselves to. And so that's that's what I do for work now. Previously, I worked at Walmart Stores, Inc. doing diversity strategy. Um, I also kind of ran the intern program there for a while, as well as mentoring for the corporation globally. Um, I worked in healthcare uh, before that. Um, but I always had a little bit of a tie to um, the diversity and inclusion space. And so um, it's it's quite natural that I landed in this particular role at this
0: point. Fabulous. And that brings me really nicely to my next question. So as I mentioned, we're here to talk about your book, Allies and Advocates, Creating an Inclusive and Equitable Culture. Can you tell me a little bit about, I suppose, the background to your book, why, why you decided to write it um, and really what the sort of main themes of the book are?
1: So the book's title gives you everything. Um, The book is called (laughs) Allies and Advocates. That's what we're going to talk about. And why does that matter? Because folks want to create an inclusive and equitable culture. So um, Wiley is pretty good at that, like making sure that the title tells you what the book is about. Um, If it had been left up to me, we would have had some really nice, whimsical (laughs) title that maybe wouldn't have been quite so good. But yeah, the book is essentially... The combination of a few trainings that I was delivering prior to writing the book and the way it came about is a woman who ultimately ended up being my acquisitions editor for Wiley reached out to me after going through one of my classes and said, you need to write this. This is fantastic. And I'm like, oh, OK, great. And so, of course, my little whimsical titles and ideas begin. And she's like, no, no, like exactly what you taught is the thing that you should make the book about. And so that's how it came about. Um, So for those of you who want to be authors out there, just know that there are actually people called acquisition editors that are looking for you. And so um, (laughs) I was discovered by this woman and um, she was amazing and helped me kind of consolidate what my idea was and build a book out of it. Now, what the book actually does is it provides kind of a base level understanding of a number of the key terms that we hear most commonly in the inclusion space. So you get kind of a baseline understanding of what allyship and advocacy are, but also you get a lot of the things that are around it that are important to making it work. So like, what's inclusion? What does diversity mean? Where does privilege play a part? You know, so it gives a lot of that. And provides you actionable steps so language you can use, um, actual tactics that you can employ when you find yourself in a situation where you maybe put your foot in your mouth. It's intended to be a light level, easy to digest guide, but like definitely packed with lots of supporting information. So as you are living your real life, not just your I'm curled up with a book life, you have some sense of how to actually show up as an ally and an advocate in a world that we know is evolving more and having more conversations about identity that can be difficult for people to navigate.
0: I mean, just picking up, up on that, I think, you know, given the current climate, people are very aware of of issues surrounding diversity and equality, and they, they, they want to really embrace that sort of culture of inclusivity. I think a lot of people often forget themselves and, you know, they, they do say things that they don't intend to say and the meaning is sometimes lost and that is an issue for a lot of people and and something people are very aware of why do you think it's an important time for a book like this to come along and give people practical help in how they can i suppose behave appropriately and inclusively in the workplace
1: yeah it's interesting because i think that we do think about it as behaving appropriately and inclusively and what i try to sell in the book you know like in addition to the book but what I try to kind of get across is like, this is a way to be for your life. This isn't a thing that you do for work or when you're out at the park or in public, like you should generally be concerned about spaces being inclusive as a whole. And the benefit to that for you as a person, obviously we're going to have our little self-serving motivations, but also your children, your families, the communities you live in, the places you shop, like the impact that it's going to have on that. And so, you know, what I'm trying to get across in the book is that inclusion isn't a thing to do, it's a way to be. And if you are really uncomfortable or particularly challenged by the current climate where we are talking about things like privilege and police brutality and race and all of those things, like if you're challenged by that stuff, then what you really want is a different experience in your life, not just your workplace or your kid's school. And so you have to think about how do you activate inclusion across the board? And that's really what this book is aiming to do.
0: Absolutely. Loads of things there I'm going to come back to. But firstly, just just for, for, for my sort of information, how would you define the difference between an ally and an advocate?
1: So the really simple difference is that an ally is more focused on the people. Um, so when you are serving as an ally, what you are trying to do is think about the ways that you experience your life and your privilege and how that may be different from someone else and thinking about ways you can extend that privilege to that person. And so um, it's about the individual or the group that you are taking an interest in and developing empathy for. With advocacy, it's about the systems and the processes and the you know the things that are actually creating the obstacles. And so, as an advocate, what you're trying to do is like challenge the process, even if that process works for you, or challenge you know the way that things are handled, or you know the way oppression can show up. It's more about the machine, so to speak. And so that's really the biggest difference. Um, Folks kind of try to stair step these and say like, well, allyship is good, but you really want advocacy. And it's like actually, it depends. Like you. You need allyship in some cases, you need advocacy in others, and sometimes you need both. And so a really simple way of thinking about it, and I use this example quite a bit, you know, we've all heard, you know, the idea of someone wanting to apply for a job, but just not really knowing a whole lot about the company, right? So allyship would be, you know, kind of getting in there and having some conversation with them and giving them insight into the culture and what folks are going to be looking for and sharing with them like the best way to show up so that they can really land the job, right? That's allyship. Advocacy is really moving away from the idea that culture fit should be a candidate qualifier. Like culture fit is not something that everyone's going to have access to. It's not something that people are necessarily going to understand. It's largely influenced by the identities of the people that are part of said organization. And so it therefore is just kind of not fair. And so what advocacy is looking to do is say like, should we really be evaluating people on this thing? Because it's not really accessible to everybody. Let's get rid of it. And so that's, that's kind of the difference between the two and how they, you know, they don't stare step atop each other, but they work in different ways.
0: Okay, that's, that's fascinating. That's, that's really insightful. Thank you. And I, I suppose sort of building on that a little bit, let, let's work to the assumption that, that, that our listeners want to be allies and advocates, but they don't quite know how to, to do that. So what would you say are the key traits of an inclusive leader who I suppose encompasses these qualities you've just discussed? What, what would you say sort of are the qualities that makes up that sort of person?
1: Allyship and advocacy are just parts of being an inclusive leader. Um, You want to aim to be an inclusive leader as well as be an ally and an advocate. That's kind of part of it. When you are being an inclusive leader, what that means is that you are being purposeful about creating spaces where inclusion is, you know, invited. And so what does that mean, right? Like what does inclusion even mean, right? Like we have all these terms. And so I'll just try to simplify that. Inclusion is basically, you know, valuing, supporting, connecting, championing the uniqueness in all of us. So our beliefs, our styles, our perspectives, our ideas, our opinions, all of those things being you know, in a space where they feel valued and supported and, you know, kind of welcomed to the territory. And so to be an inclusive leader, you have to actually do the labor of valuing folks. You've got to do the labor of supporting people. You have to do the labor of connecting. And that is where the work lies. Like that's what makes this hard because sometimes someone has an idea I don't necessarily appreciate or like. It isn't necessarily you know, disrespectful or harmful. I just don't agree with it. And so it's hard for me to value it. But inclusion recognizes that like this idea deserves the space to exist. People should hear it so that we can start to figure out like what is the right direction for us to move collectively or, you know, mostly collectively. Right. And and that's that's the thing about what being an inclusive leader is about when you're thinking about your team, when you're thinking about supporting people that, you know, are a part of your organization, how you communicate, you know, how you're using language that is inclusive to bring them along, how you're being purposeful about apologizing when a mistake is made instead of deflecting, how you're speaking up when there are non-inclusive or inequitable behaviors happening. So it's a series of things that make up showing up as an inclusive leader. And a lot of them are just really behaviors that in some ways, depending on the culture or the climate or the organization feel a little uncomfortable to do. Like, I don't know if I want to speak up when I hear my boss say something that feels like it could be oppressive. I don't know you know, if I want to stop saying, hey guys, you know, knowing that guys is not gender inclusive language. And so it, it's that kind of thing that yeah. really makes it difficult to get inclusivity like down as a leader.
0: Yeah, I, to- I totally hear where you're coming from. Now, from my expe- experience as well, I think that education and the way that, that certainly I was brought up has an impact on, on how I, I operate now. So to, to explain from my perspective, when I went to school, I was very much taught everybody's equal, David. Everybody's the same. Um, you know, everybody has the same opportunities. You know, you, you shouldn't see colour, you shouldn't see gender. And I think that reflecting on that now as an adult... That's not necessarily correct, is it? We should see people for what they are. People should be visible and we should embrace diversity by respecting and honoring people's, their gender, their race, their religion. Is that something that you think is, is still coming across in workplaces that, that people are almost ignoring the diversity um, challenge by, by just assuming that, they, that everybody's equal and they, they want to be seen the same way?
1: Yeah. I, I think the natural inclination for an organization is to encourage people to be the same. Yeah. Um. The unfortunate thing though, is that that stamps out a lot of things that you get from people being different, you know, yeah. the innovative ideas, the, you know, insight into different communities, the perspectives about, you know, the experiences of folks that are not necessarily, you know, um, connected to a certain area the same way as someone else, you know, and so there's a lot of things that you miss out when you kind of, Require this like standard conforming type energy. Um, so I think that companies are coming around to that. I just think they're really uncomfortable because it's super like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm getting into. I don't know what identities are going to show up. You know, I don't know how people are going to need to be supported. And not having that control feels very scary for a company who's looking to like grow and make money and you know all of those things. So I I think it's I think we're on the journey. I think that people for the most part. Um, particularly the large organizations that I work with are just really resistant to like letting it happen. I think there's a lot of fear around, wait, if I'm inclusive of folks that have all kinds of ideas and have all kinds of perspectives, what happens when someone has a harmful perspective? And it's like, well, no, you can still challenge that. You can still shut it down and eliminate it. Like, Inclusion doesn't mean include everyone all the time either. Right. So you're not also looking for the universal neutral, which I think is some of what you were describing. Right. Like everyone's the same. Everyone has the same opportunity. It's like, no, we don't like, let's, you know, we can benefit, though, and create products and ideas and resources to support communities better if we acknowledge that. Right. And so I think we're on the way. I just think that we're just really uncomfortable with letting go of the control of, you know, holding on to the idea that everyone is truly the same.
0: I think the term comfortable and uncomfortable is a great one as well, because personally speaking, I would like to be a little bit uncomfortable. I would like to be constantly checking myself and thinking, right, well, are the things that I'm saying appropriate? Are they having an effect on people that I don't expect them to have? And, you know, I I think that's, you know, I would love to be called out if I said something inappropriate because I, I would like to be able to move forward and not do it again. So, you know, I I appreciate that as well, you know, but I think that we should be comfortable to be uncomfortable if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. And honestly, that's kind of the way I teach it. Like I remind people, like, were you comfortable in 2020? Like most of us were not like, (laughs) if you were, can you give us the blueprint? Because it was awful, but like, but you grew, you learned a lot, you adapted, your kids adapted, your companies, everybody learned a lot of things. And so it's like, recognizing that like the growth comes when you're uncomfortable and being willing to put yourself there and reap the reward of that growth. Now that doesn't mean that like you don't get to be comfortable in your own home or in your private spaces and, you know, you don't need to recharge and all of those things. But like when we're talking about having relationship or selling products or like creating services for folks, we got to get uncomfortable. Or we're just never going to deliver something that's going to actually get the job done.
0: Yeah. And then I suppose reflecting a little bit in 2020. Um one of the major issues that we we faced as a as a global community was COVID-19. Um and and you know it's it's still going and hopefully we're moving out of it now. But do you think that it had disproportionately impacted some groups over others in the workplace? And if so, which groups do you think have been more or indeed less impacted by the pandemic?
1: Yeah, I think You know, the reality of the situation is that the pandemic affected folks that are more um, impoverished and a lot of those poverty lines fall along race and ethnicity lines. So as a result of that, absolutely, you know, your workers that are doing more of those, you know, front customer facing, interacting type roles were the most impacted. They lost yeah. the most jobs. They lost the most coverage in terms of healthcare. They were also the more likely to be at risk of, you know, what could happen if they lost their jobs, they lost the most homes. Like, so yeah, I think that there are people who were significantly more impacted. You know, where I am in the U.S. and around the globe, like it's you know, it's been and that's kind of the case. Right. The the most at risk people are always those that we kind of see at the bottom, you know, the ones that don't really have access to as many resources. And I think that covid-19 just amplified that, you know, and, you know, I think we can even see some of that right now with what's going on in, in India. It's, it's rather heartbreaking, actually, like to think about yep. that something can just occur that can really just pull back the wool on folks' eyes about, you know, we like to think, you know, kind of what you were saying earlier, where it's like everyone has the same chance, people have the same access, people have the same opportunity. And then you have a pandemic come around that just really highlights for you, like where the lines are in terms of, you know, who can survive something like this and who cannot.
0: Literally in some cases. Yeah, Absolutely. So moving on to something a little bit more optimistic and positive. So say, for, for instance, an organization is they've used the learnings of the, of the past year. Um, and they're sort of thinking, you know, well, we want to move forward. We want to look again at our, our inclusivity strategy and, and our culture. What would your advice be to an organization? You know, say they were starting from ground zero and building up a, a new culture that they want to be inclusive and they're on that journey. What would be the first sort of steps to, to putting that in place and getting something, creating movement, I suppose, within the organization?
1: That's a good question. Um, The very first thing that I think an organization should do is really get clear about who they are and where their challenges are. So like, you know, whether that's doing listening sessions, whether that's doing culture surveys, I think you need to get clear about what's happening in the organization's culture that you love. And then what are the things that are happening that you would like to kind of push out? the reason for that is that sometimes the things that are really great about an organization's culture can help you to keep um, some of those things that are not so great, you know, at bay. And so that's usually the first step is getting clear about what's the org culture. And there's a lot of ways to do that. Like I said, culture surveys, there are tons of them online, tons of companies do that. Um, you can do um, listening sessions, which can be either guided by like an organization like mine, or um, can be done internally. If you have support from diversity and inclusion inclusion folks um, inside of the business. But once you get that data, you want to get clear about, okay, what does this mean about us? And what do I like? And what do I not want to continue? You know, So kind of build this start, stop, continue situation. Then the next thing you want to do is establish a common language. The thing that people don't always realize is that when I say inclusion and you say inclusion, it doesn't always mean the same thing. When <laughs> I say diversity and you say diversity, it doesn't always mean the same thing. I still encounter people that When I say diversity, I mean, you know, everybody, because we're all diverse. We all have unique styles, beliefs, perspectives, identities, opinions, all that stuff. But other folks will say diversity and they mean people who are not white. Yeah. You know, and so it's like let's get clear about what we mean when we are saying these words. And once you have that common language, then you can start to partner to figure out, okay, this is where I think we want to go. These are the things we want to see in our culture. And you can have conversations about them and everyone understands what's being said. And that's when you get to defining, okay, this is where we're moving. This is what we want. Here are the tactics and strategies we're going to use to get there. And I mean, obviously you can pull in a partner to help with that. Like that's kind of what the work that we do um that's where you start (laughs) you know like what do we look like really you know that holding the mirror up and then let's get some language we all know we understand what we're saying to each other and then we'll actually talk about it and once you get to that place you can start defining like your goals and your timelines and all of those things to help you move towards a more inclusive culture
0: I think even asking um, colleagues and staff those questions and, and offering them that chance to be heard and be visible is, is a massive step forward in the inclusivity journey as well, because people will be thinking, great, finally, people are listening to my perspective. I can be seen. I can be heard. My views matter. That must be a, a huge step in, I suppose, a, a cultural mentality as well of moving towards that way of thinking.
1: It is sometimes, it really depends on the current state of the company. So sometimes you have companies that the cultures have been such that it was so driven by leadership direction that it's hard to get the answers to come out. So even though you're saying, hey, we want to hear from you, we're trying to figure out the best way to move this thing forward. You also could have a culture of individuals that value being given directives because that's what's been rewarded in the company. And that's why it's so important to actually do that work of figuring out like, who are we? How do we show up? How do we communicate? What do we love about it? What do we not love about it? So that you can start to figure out. And I I mean, there are ways to, even get around that, but it will take more time, right? Because people are hesitant to speak up, you know. So it's different from culture to culture. Some companies you're like, hey, we're doing a culture survey. We want to get a sense of what you think about us. And people are like, Absolutely. I can't wait to tell you. <laughs> and then you get those companies where you'll send it out and you'll get like 30% participation. And you're like, what's happening yeah. here? You know? So <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's a really mixed bag depending on the organization.
0: You mentioned privilege earlier in the conversation. And I think this is a fascinating topic as well, but also. A tricky subject because those who have privilege might be unaware or don't want to acknowledge that they're privileged. So what would your advice be to an individual to, to really take account of and, and I suppose own their privilege, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah. You know, privilege is a funny little word. We get really defensive about it. Like I'm not privileged. I had a hard life. And so this is the <laughs> way I teach privilege, <laughs> you know, like just to get folks on a ground level. Every single person has privilege. Everybody. You could be the most impoverished person. You could be the most wealthy person. You could be somewhere in the middle. You could have had the best education and the worst education. You could have come from a two-parent family. You could have been adopted. It could be any of those things. You have some kind of privilege. We all do because what privilege is, is access to rights, advantages, and opportunities. That's really what it is. It doesn't mean that you haven't had a hard life. It doesn't mean that you haven't encountered struggle. It doesn't mean that you don't have things that you need to overcome currently. It just means there is something that is happening in your life and in your world that works to your benefit in some really good circumstances, right? So if you are listening to this podcast with your two ears and do not need assistance to do that, that is a privilege. There are folks that can't do it. If you woke up this morning and you had hot, clean, running water, that is a privilege. There are lots of folks on this planet that don't have clean water, let alone clean, hot, running water. And so I try to get folks to understand privilege in that sense and also to recognize like, you don't even think about it. Did you think about if your ears were going to work when you listen to this podcast? Did you reconsider if your water was going to be hot when you turned it on this morning? No. And so a lot of times, you know, when we're talking about privilege, People don't notice their privilege. And when it comes up and it's exposed to them, they're defensive about it. Like, but wait, look at all these other things that are not working. And it's important to recognize that with privilege, that's not really what it's about. It's about you understanding that, yes, if you live in white skin, you have privilege. That doesn't mean that your life hasn't been challenging in some other ways. I happen to be a very light complexioned black woman. That is a privilege. There's a lot of privilege that comes with having fair skin. And so I have to own and, you know, Like live my life in that. Does that mean that I haven't had other struggles? No. Does that also mean that I always am the most mindful and aware of my privilege? No, but it does mean that it's there. And here's the thing. A lot of the privilege we have, we didn't pick for ourselves. You just ended up with it. You showed up here in this container and it comes with some perks. And so getting clear about that to me, I think really disarms people around like the idea that they already have around privilege and, you know, the, you know, the kind of looking down their nose about it. And perhaps helps you get to the place where you can see your own, because That's really the critical part of allyship. Allyship isn't, you know, putting yourself in this really uncomfortable, difficult position, you know, to help someone else. What it really is, is looking at the ways that you have privilege and power and looking at how some folks around you don't have that privilege and power and then finding ways to extend it. Well, if you've got privilege, you've probably got an abundance because you didn't even think about it, right? You don't even consider it. And so that's the way I typically teach privilege to people so they can kind of get out of their feelings about like wait a minute, I'm not privileged, you know, and defensive about it. We all have some, it just, you know, it's just a matter of figuring out if it works for you and how and when it works for you so that you can figure out how to use it to support other people.
0: I'm going to hear that. It's so profound, but also it's so sensible. And I think when you put it in those terms, that absolutely makes sense to me and I can see exactly, you know, my own privilege where I come from and how I can, I suppose, use that own that and then, you know, communicate better. So that's super useful. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Going back to the idea of allies and advocates, just briefly, how do you think that organizations and individuals within them can avoid acting in a, I suppose, a performative way when it comes to being an ally or an advocate?
1: Yeah, performative allyship is tricky because we don't always know we're doing it (laughs) when it happens. Um, So the thing I often ask people to consider if they're worried about doing something performative is, can you identify the impact? So, for example, getting likes, being accepted, having people cheer you on—those are not impactful changes. When you're trying to be an ally and an advocate, you're trying to make some change. You're trying to see something that is impactful that's going to shape how someone experiences the world. You're not looking for accolades. And so, if you can't identify an actual impact, there's a chance that you are being performative. So, an example for you know the workplace might be: let's say we're all in a meeting, um, you know, and we are having some conversation and you david say to, you know to me hey amber you know I know you were supposed to have these slides prepared today I'm so disappointed that you're not ready and I'm not even sure what we're supposed to do with the time today because you're unprepared right and so I knowing that in the previous meeting you know that's not what you said to me and also you know dear listener let's say you're in this meeting as well you happen to know that that's not what was said to me either right but we're a little nervous because you know dave is the leader here and you know I don't know if I should speak now, in a typical situation like that in a work environment, what will happen is that we kind of take it in the moment. And then after the meeting, you know, you kind of convene with some of your colleagues and go, wait, did you hear that? Is that what happened? And oh, no, that's not what happened. David's totally wrong, right? We have this little meeting after the meeting situation. And really all that does is pacify emotions. Mm -hmm. David's still mad about the fact that, you know, I haven't turned in my slide deck and that I wasn't prepared. And ultimately I'm still on the hook for that and potentially in some trouble because I didn't deliver a thing that I wasn't clear about. Now it can feel like you're being an ally when you come talk to me. When you circle back after the meeting and say, hey, Amber, that's not right. You know, that's not what happened. You shouldn't feel bad about that. You totally were correct. You know, he's really wrong about this. You may feel like you're being an ally, right? Because you're kind of stroking your your own ego about kind of standing up to say, listen, I'm on your side. But listen, the allyship has to happen in the meeting, right? Otherwise, it's performative because the impact would happen in the meeting. So that means I need you to say something in the meeting that sounds a little bit like, well, Excuse me, David, I was actually in that meeting and that's not the conversation we had, I don't recall that. And often what will happen is that others that were there will chime in and say, yeah, I was there too and that's not what I remember either. And now all of a sudden you've made an impact because David's got to reconsider what it was that he thought that he was telling Amber she didn't do well and Amber gets off the hook and out of trouble for something that she wasn't supposed to be held accountable for to begin with. That is what allyship looks like, right? The performative piece though is real easy to fall into because we just want people to not feel bad. And so we'll go and try to, you know, pacify those emotions. But ultimately, it doesn't have an impact. So that's that's how you can think of performative allyship. I think a lot of people fall into it unintentionally. But if you can identify the impact, that's one of the best ways you can stay away from it.
0: I totally get that. Now, my team are going to be listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I they'll think probably be very happy to admit that they would absolutely call me out if, if that was the case in a real meeting so I think that brings me really nicely to my next question which is around safe spaces so I think as a leader you would want to create a safe space for your team to be heard to call you out to you know to, to have effective conversations where they don't feel that you know they're being judged or they're being you know that people are going to whisper about them after the meeting that that's the sort of culture you want to have so if it starts with the individual, What would your advice be to our listeners about creating that sort of safe space where people can be heard, they can say what they need, disagreements can be voiced openly and in a constructive way, as opposed to perhaps passive aggressive or, you know, something that takes place under the radar or behind people's backs?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, the thing about safe space is that, you know, no space is safe unless it's safe for the most marginalized identity, because usually that's the person that's going to be the least likely to speak up, you know, and marginalized identities can change from situation to situation. It could be someone is the only woman in the room. It could be that someone is perhaps the only, you know, member of the LGBTQ community that is out, you know, um, in the room. Um, so it, it it can range. But when you're thinking about creating a safe space, the thing you want to just kind of do is put yourself in the a position where you either ask the person directly or you um, think about it on your own um, what would make this space safe for the most marginalized person because if you can create that everybody else is going to be fine it's that person that you know will hold out that probably has some nuggets that you need um, that that really can create you know present a bit of a challenge for you and so Um, What I try to do with safe spaces is I try to be very pointed about not declaring them safe because lots of spaces are safe for me. Like I take up a lot of room. I'm a big personality. I run a business. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of privilege that I have that I can insert myself into a space. And although I may have my own little personal insecurities for the most part, I can kind of have a bit of influence in that room. But what about the person who can't? And so I try to be really intentional and just kind of ask, like, what would make this a safe space for you? And I even sometimes have done that in a private way, right? Sometimes you have a team dynamic where you can ask it openly and you'll get folks that will chime in. Um, sometimes though, it's better to maybe send out a survey, like what would create a safe space for you? What would make an impact on the way you experience you know, our conversations as a collective or as a team? That's really the key to creating safe space. It's getting over the idea that you get to just, decide it because you feel good it's 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 outside of yourself which honestly is most of this stuff right being an ally being an advocate being an inclusive leader all of those things are outside of you and so we spend most of our lives really in our own minds and bodies and not necessarily thinking about the world around us and of course that changes when you have children and teams and all that stuff but like you still spend a lot of time with just you Being able to kind of step outside of yourself and ask what needs to happen outside of me is really the key to creating, you know, the safe space, the inclusive environments, the allyship, the advocacy, all of those things.
0: Amazing that's all we have time for today, I'm afraid. But Amber, thank you. Firstly, thank you so much for writing this book. I think it's really important. I think it's really timely. And I think it's it's really useful for people to to read and, and to, to find out more about. And secondly, thanks for taking the time to speak to me today for taking uh, a complicated issue, making it practical, useful, and fascinating. I've so enjoyed speaking to you today. So thank you for your time.
1: Yeah, same here, David. Thanks so much for having me. This was great.
0: Well, thank you so much again, Amber, for taking the time to speak to us today for the podcast. As I mentioned at the start of the conversation, Amber's book is called Allies and Advocates, Creating an Inclusive and Equitable Culture, and it's available from all good book retailers. If you're interested to find out some more content around diversity, inclusion, allyship, you can find that on our website at www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition.